Welcome to Blind Squirrel Macro, the pod, our usual companion to the weekly newsletter, which you can find for free at blindsquirrelmacro.com. Squirrel here on the morning of Tuesday, the 20th of February, Melbourne time. Well, we got through inflation week. This week, it's NVIDIA earnings week. Are you ready? But first, our uh, our usual message from legal. Everything in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is categorically not investment advice. Before making any investment decisions, for heaven's sakes, don't listen to a cartoon rodent. Talk to a financial advisor. Now, I'm sure by now you've all been wowed by Sora, OpenAI's new video generator. But this week, I'm going to start with something from the late 19th century, a quote from Robert Louis Stevenson's Katrina, spelt Catriona the sequel to his novel Kidnapped. The Bass. There began to fall a greyness on the face of the sea. Little dabs of pink and red, like coals of a slow fire, came in the east, and at the same time the geese awakened and began crying at the top of the bass. It is just one crag of rock, as everybody knows, but big enough to carve a city from. With the growing of the dawn, I could see it clearer and clearer, the straight crags painted with seabirds' droppings like a morning frost, the sloping top of it green with grass, the clan of white geese that cried about the sides and the black broken buildings of the prison sitting close on the sea's edge. Now, the magnificent Bass Rock and the coastline of East Lothian in Scotland were a backdrop to my childhood. I always used to marvel at how the magnificence of this barren rock, made famous by Stevenson, jarred with the gag-reflex-inducing stench of excrement from its population of 150,000 gannets when he got close to the island by boat. Sea droppings, or guano, is still used as a fertiliser in some parts of the world for its nitrogen, phosphate and potassium content. However, for the most part, there's no longer brass in that muck business. Since the early 20th century, synthetic fertilisers have done the heavy lifting of the Green Revolution, without which our planet could only support a population about 50% of the current size. The success of mechanised agriculture and the Green Revolution has happily put the Malthusians firmly back in their boxes. The life-saving role of agricultural technology dwarfs the role of blood transfusion, vaccines, antibiotics and other medical breakthroughs. It's estimated that by Medigo that synthetic fertilizers, fertilizers have saved over 2.7 billion lives since 1909. That compares with 530 million by the smallpox vaccine. We currently have 7 billion people on a planet that would only just sustain four, just under 4 billion without synthetic fertilizers. Agricultural technology has also endured Ensured, ensured rather that a portion of economic activity devoted to feeding people does not dominate national GDP in all, all except some of the poorest populations on the planet. However, I'm not alone in being surprised at the extent to which food prices have collapsed since peaking at the time of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. After the panic, pandemic-related supply chain shocks, global food prices have been remarkably suppressed given geopolitical pressure and, more recently, the significant negative effects from drought and flood in certain parts of the world. According to UN data, food prices are back to March 2021 levels. Forecasts of the risk of the next Arab Spring resulting from a lack of Ukrainian-slash-Black Sea food supply appear to have been majorly overstated. For now, grains have managed to find a way to their end markets and grain prices have remained stubbornly low.
At face value, Russia and China, the latter having endured significant and well-documented weather stress, have managed to increase grain production, and I put that in air quotes, to offset reduced supplies from war-torn Ukraine and failed monsoon hit India. Either that or global stocks and balances were woefully understated before the crises. A deglobalizing world has to make that kind of data far more unreliable. And then there's technology. In the same way that man-made fertilizers have ensured that the world's growing, growing population has continued to receive the calories it needs, is advancing seed science, i.e. GMO crops and CRISPR, keeping the impact of increasing weather volatility at bay. Science is astounding. Drought and wind-resistant corn varietals and fungal hazard-alerting soybean plants are all coming to a field near you. Science 1, Malthusians nil. Now, it's not clear to the squirrel that this amazing technology is yet operational at mission-accomplished scale. I suspect that it is, in fact, the official data on stocks and balances that's flawed. We saw only last week that the USDA feels qualified to disagree with CONAB, its equivalent government body in Brazil, about checks notes the Brazilian corn and soybean crop forecasts for 2024. I'm not planning to kick off a theoretical debate about the disinflationary impact of ag tech on food prices. That's not the point here. In a world where a growing population is faced with increased weather volatility and climate stress, mankind needs all the help we can get to keep up with food production requirements. I might add at this stage that alienating the global farming community with impractical and at times nonsensical new climate regulation is probably not a great start. Now, I put a picture in the piece or a montage in the piece with a, with a series of photographs of protesting farmers around the world, literally everywhere from the Philippines to the Champs-Elysees, where one tractor had a pithy sign on the side saying, farming, noun, the art of losing money while working 400 hours a week to feed people who think you're trying to kill them. Pretty, pretty much sums it up there. Now, I'm going to bring up the T word. Last week's surprise increases in U.S. CPI and PPI inflation data made tough reading for the camp of economists determined to write off the global inflationary pressures evident since the pandemic as transitory. Last week's scorching hot numbers, even though flattered by still depressed energy prices, have been analysed extensively elsewhere. But let's stick with food inflation. Surely there can be no more important a topic in a year where so many of the world's democracies go to the polls, although I will add that pump gasoline prices to food in the case of the US. In most parts of the world, food inflation has decelerated dramatically. Now, the only exception appears to be in Brazil, which looks to be possibly turning up in terms of food inflation. That's odd. The world's largest net exporter of ag products. That's That's a weird data point. As ever, human beings love to extrapolate the current trend. Look no further than the current extreme short positioning in the grain futures markets. Feels like a tinderbox to me. I simply don't understand the inner expected value calculations of those traders that are pressing their short positions at this stage of the cycle. Flat can be a position too. Now let's drill down a little further and come back to where we started with fertilizers. Fertilizer prices clearly got ahead of themselves in 2021 and 2022, but have now caught down and now appear to be holding the long-term upward trend line that goes back to the beginning of the century. Zooming into urea specifically, 
You could argue that pricing looks, sets to, looks now set to re-establish an uptrend just as soon as the U.S. natural gas producers stop commissioning new drill wigs, rigs with spot futures trading below $2 per million BTU. Stranger things may have happened. It feels like food prices may be about to do exactly the same thing. Back in October, in refocusing the squirrel's ag positioning, I did some work on trying to understand correlations between the various agricultural commodities over time. I put together a very busy graph that's in the written piece, but there are a couple of interesting takeaways. Over the 40-year history that I was looking at, most of the soft commodities performance have been completely underwhelming. I was looking at coffee, cotton, and cocoa in particular. A lack of pricing power for cash crop growers in emerging markets, perhaps. I'm guessing that the much better growth in protein-related agricultural commodities, i.e. the meats themselves and their fodder, related largely to a shift in global meat demand as China's economy grew post-WTO entry. And the rise of sugar? Well, it looks like you can draw a straight line from that to the reason why everyone's now bidding up the GLP-1 drug providers like Nova Nordisk and Eli Lilly. Anyway, I still need to do this correlation analysis properly, but I do still have my eyeballs and they work. And if you isolate the major grains, it does look as though we are, or at least approaching, a multi-decade line of uptrend support. Then let's take a look at the equities. ETF, ticker Moo, holds a diversified portfolio of global agriculture-linked stocks. Not many components have been delivering positive shareholder returns over a 12-month period. Only a small number of constituents have have delivered even the smallest of positive shareholder returns. Moo has lost almost 50% of its assets under management, measured by shares outstanding, since its peak in Q2 2022, i.e. the outbreak of the Russia-Ukraine war. Since peaking then, Mu has been in a steady two-year downtrend. However, looking at the chart, did we just make a lower, a, a higher low, bang in the middle of a Fibonacci retracement from the COVID lows? And zooming out to the weekly chart, so this goes back all the way to pre the financial crisis, you can see that this is a stock that really does not like to spend protracted lengths of time below its 200 or 100 week moving averages. I've spent the last few weeks immersed in earnings call transcripts for the fertilizer companies, commodity trading shops, and the ag equipment companies. I've even been listening to podcasts about secondhand markets for tractors and combine harvesters. The ag complex feels as though it's about to turn. I'm, however, waiting for some formal technical confirmation of a trend reversal before publishing something new in the sector. For exposure to the sector, Vanex Moo is a decent vehicle and certainly superior to the BlackRock equivalent, ticker VEGI, i.e. Veggie, which is less liquid and has an outsized 22% allocation to John Deere, the tractor company. However, I do believe that you need to be a bit more surgical about the choice of subsectors within ag. In section two of the written letter for paid subscribers this week, um, we look at how um, we might be able to improve on the Moo ETF for our ag exposure and reviewed the latest on our ACORN positions in a number of energy verticals, touched on our new idea in pluggable coherent optics, uh, a new AI picks and shovels theme basket that we published last week. We also revisited tyres, Brazil and midcaps. And I also mused on the fact that it might be time to come off the fence in the US Treasury market, 
we've been in the very much in the tea bill and chill, chill camp recently. Now that's it for all. Well, that's all for this week on the pod. I want to make a quick um, shout out to reader David, who very kindly um, popped over on his motorbike to help me set my um, recording settings here on the podcast. And I, um, I hope you can notice a difference. Please find out more about the squirrel at blindsquirrelmacro.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at squirrelmacro. Thanks for listening. Squirrel out. <laughs>